In the 1970s, the Provisional IRA was in the early days of its armed campaign to end British rule on the island of Ireland. In the United States, a small group of activists began organizing on their behalf. They called themselves the Irish Northern Aid Committee, NORAID, and they were looking for a fight. War is always violence, and if that's the only way, and history tells us it's the only way to get freedom, then it must be war. This is a story that travels back and forth across the Atlantic, over three decades of conflict. And in six episodes, Foreign Agent will explore how regular Americans became militant advocates for the cause of Irish freedom. Whether they have dust on their knees from coming from mass or not, they're trying to acquire Uzi machine guns and surface-to-air missiles to shoot down helicopters. We'll hear directly from some of the people who provided military and financial support to the Irish Republican Army. We'll follow the guns and the money from South Boston and the Bronx. And we'll also meet people who wrote letters, walked the picket lines, and built Irish Northern Aid into a nationwide organization. Somebody would drive a flatbed truck down into Manhattan. We would be announcing the demonstration in and out through the Bronx before coming down to outside the British consulate. We had thousands of people out of those demonstrations. And we'll see that at every step of the way, the U.S. government tried to shut them down. We will do everything we possibly can to prevent American citizens' assistance to the terrorists in Ireland. We'll meet the teetotaler and life insurance actuary who was the public face of Irish Northern Aid. We'll spend time with the communist armored truck driver who ran thousands of guns out of his small apartment in Brooklyn. And we'll tell the wild court case that made them into heroes of the Irish Republican movement. An eight-week-long gun smuggling trial in New York's Brooklyn federal court went to the jury today. The question to be answered, were the defendants working for the IRA or the CIA? I'm here with Nate Levy and Michael McCann from the Foreign Agent Podcast on Novara Media. Uh, if you're a fan of Blowback, for example, it's a, a podcast documentary, six episodes about the history of the support of the IRA in the United States, which is a really good way of learning about the history of the IRA in general. I don't know much about it, to my great shame, even though I'm half Irish, though I learned a lot from the series. Thanks for joining us. If you want to introduce yourselves... Yeah, my name is Nate Levy. Uh, thanks for having us, Andy. Michael. And my name is Michael McCann. Cool. So how did you come to do this show? Um, yeah, it's been uh, kind of like kicking around for a long time at this point. Um, I think back in maybe 2015 or 2014, I just read a sort of general history of the IRA um, called A Secret History of the IRA by uh, this journalist, Ed Maloney. And sort of buried in there, uh, it's a big book, uh, was a handful of references to the Irish Northern Aid Committee, uh, or NORAID. And um, I pretty much just looked them up online uh, and was surprised to see that they had a website, that they had a, uh, a phone number, which I think was 1-800-IRELAND or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, Does it still work? And, uh, I don't know if the phone number still works, but the website is still up. It's very, like, mm-hmm. Geocities-esque. Um, and it was bizarre, you know, they like technically existed, but when you went on the website, there was like no events, no way to get involved, no way to even donate. Um, and I started doing a little looking uh, and found out that they were a 501c3 organization, uh, basically a nonprofit. Uh, and those groups are required to file some financial paperwork uh, with the IRS every year uh, that is open to the public. And through that, I realized that not only were they still around, but they were actually bringing in uh, much more money uh, than basically anybody knew. Uh, Even journalists who had covered the troubles, knew about NORAID, uh, assumed that they were defunct. Uh, But in in those documents, I was able to show and and find out that, in fact, they were bringing in, you know, I think it was like $1.6 million in a two-year period. Um, and for an organization that supposedly doesn't exist anymore, uh, you know, that sort of like piqued my interest. And you, you theorize in the last episode that, and I want to give too much away, but this could be dirty money. <laughs> Very dirty money. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the IRA uh, and Sinn Féin, it's sort of uh, political wing, um, since the Troubles, you know, began uh, in essentially 1970, Uh, have always looked for ways to raise money uh, that are sort of on the books and off the books. 
And as you might imagine, a, a guerrilla organization needs a lot of off the books uh, accounting. Um, and, you know, for their entire existence, uh, the IRA did uh, sort of like bank robberies. They did, they ran sort of like their own pubs. Um, they invested in property. Uh, they ran, you know, small shops that would essentially feed money back into the movement. Um, and as late as 2010, um, it seems like some of that money may have uh, ended up in uh, Norad coffers uh, and then maybe it was sent back to Ireland. So it was perhaps this sort of like money laundering operation. Mm -hmm. I want to like be clear that, you know, all we have are these financial documents that like do suggest a strange influx of money around the time when this bank robbery happened in, in 2004. Um, but, uh, we don't have any sort of like admission uh, from anyone inside Norad or inside Sinn Féin. And in fact, could not get anybody who's currently involved with Sinn Féin to talk to us about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but they, the the person who you contacted at Norad had some funny responses like, well, you know, uh, let the IRS decide what's uh, what's proper use of funds or not. He was like, no, no, <laughs> yeah, it's... Exactly. Um, yeah, exactly. It was this bizarre thing where, you know, we were talking to a representative um, who had been involved with Norad, who was on the board of directors the year that this big influx came through. And instead of saying, nope, this is totally legit money and, uh, you know, we absolutely aren't involved with any criminality, he said something like extremely evasive, like, I will let others decide if the money, you know, has uh, come in through legitimate means or not or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. It's totally crazy because there's no way where that money came from with the like the records that we could get our hands on. So he could have just easily denied it. It's not it's not a crime to deny things to you know to reporters or journalists. Uh huh. What about you, Michael? How did you get involved in in doing the show? And uh, you know, what was your uh, impetus for doing it? Are you an Irish Republican yourself? <laughs> Um, well, I'm, I am like you half Irish, but, um, you know, Nate, uh, brought this story to me that he'd been, or told this story to me that he'd been working on for, for several years. And, um, I was really, you know, the, sort of the bit about Nori today and the money is, is really interesting, but sort of the background story I found really fascinating, the sort of unknown history of, of sort of broad support for Irish Republicanism, um, and you know I've uh, I'm not an Irish Republican, although I have you know I have feelings about who should who should run the island of Ireland in its entirety. But um, you know I, I am interested in sort of social movements and uh, some of the armed struggle movements that came in in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And you know the um, the struggle in Northern Ireland sort of stands out. It's um, I would say probably one of the most successful of the armed groups, uh, the IRA is one of the most successful of the armed groups in the West, in Western Europe. Yeah, so why don't we, yeah, we're, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Why don't we go over uh, the history of the IRA in uh, five minutes or less? <laughs> okay, we'll do our best. Um, <laughs> you know, I think, you know, one thing to keep in mind is that the IRA is really not just one thing. Uh, you know, in, in many ways, it's sort of a, a tradition with uh, various tendencies that are represented, different sort of claimants and tactical strategy, tr strategies. Um, and this continues up until today. But, you know, as long as there's been sort of a British presence in Ireland, there have been groups of people uh, who've been fighting them. And this goes, you know, all the way back to like the 1100s. Um, but if you want to tell the story of the IRA, like one place you can start is in 1916, uh, when uh, a sort of collection of soldiers from a group called the Irish Volunteers, um, along with some other organizations, are sort of finished waiting for the British to grant independence to the island, um, or even, you know, sort of like limited autonomy, which at that time was called Home Rule. Um, and that group of uh, volunteers launch a rebellion around Easter time uh, in 1916. And this is really the sort of like mytho-poetical event of modern Ireland. Um, but the rebellion fails, uh, and the survivors sort of regroup and begin uh, a guerrilla war against the British. Um, and this is called sort of alternatively uh, the Black and Tan War 
or the Irish War of Independence. Um, and while this is going on, uh, Sinn Féin, a nationalist political party who was like not involved with the rebellion, um, contest and win uh, an election that takes place across the island uh, in 1918. And this is sort of the moment where the IRA and Sinn Féin uh, sort of uh, connect uh, and join. Um, and this is where the IRA sort of trace their political legitimacy and legal legitimacy from uh, to continue to fight against the British occupation. Um, but the war uh, ends in this sort of controversial settlement that carves out the six counties in the north uh, from the rest of the island. Um, so the six counties uh, remain pretty much wholly within the United Kingdom. Um, so, I don't know, Michael, you want to go from right. there? Sure, yeah. So, um, you know, this is like what, what comes from this settlement, you know, um, a majority of the IRA and the people struggling against the British accept the settlement, but there's a sort of um, dissident faction and a civil war breaks out and this has becomes kind of a, a long-term split between people who want to continue to fight for a uh, united and free Ireland and people who want to accept what is then called the free state, um, which is the southern part of Ireland, which becomes later the Republic of Ireland. Um, but this kind of, uh, the settlement really takes like a lot of the wind out of the sails of the IRA. Um, they continue to, they, they launch some campaigns through the 40s and 50s, but, you know, the appetite for armed struggles just really isn't there. Um, and in this period, they sort of try and reorient themselves more towards some of the left-wing ideas that are coming, you know, that are on the rise in that period. Um, they start flirting with Marxism and um, sort of Marxist organizing, and they sort of move towards, like, housing struggles and uh, union activity and things like that. Um, and then, but in the background of this, uh, the sort of structural, inherent and structural inequalities of the six counties in the nor in Northern Ireland um, just creates this like discontent in the Catholic population. Um, there's all kinds of housing discrimination, um, jobs discrimination, and because of gerrymandering, um, this the Protestant community really dominates the government there. Um, there's this really infamous uh, quote from a South African uh, justice minister who says, you know, Northern Ireland at that period is under this sort of Special Powers Act, um, which was established in, during the 1920s war. And the, this minister in South Africa is, says that like, we would, we would trade all of our government for just one clause of this law. Um, and so in this like, uh, you know, like situation of intense discrimination, young Catholics and young uh, activists sort of launch a civil rights campaign, really inspired by the black civil rights campaign in the United States at the same time, sort of in the mid 1960s. And um, it was, you know, uh, it was extremely popular, but the the answer of the state and the Protestant community was just brutal repression. It was repressed like uh, with sort of terrifying ones. And um, there's also at this time like uh, unionist mobs burn out Catholic houses and shops. And in 1969, the the fighting becomes so serious um, between you know, Catholic activists, a nationalist activists, and the and the state and the state forces that the British send in the army. Um, yeah, and that really, you know, sort of changes the dynamics pretty pretty considerably. You know, um, now there's sort of you know not just sort of this mob violence going on, but now there's uh, an army on the streets. Um, and the violence that's directed uh, towards Catholic and nationalist communities, you know, creates a sort of demand for self-defense. Um, and the IRA play sort of a role in that, but there's this sense that they're actually not doing enough and that the reorientation that the group had gone through um, in the 50s and 60s, you know, towards more like left-wing political economic struggles, um, that that's been pursued at the expense of the armed struggle. 
and they're sort of accused of abandoning Catholics in the north. Um, and at that moment, you know, when the, the army sort of hits the streets, uh, the IRA actually goes through a split in 1969, 1970. Um, and, you know, the, <laughs> the history of that split is contested, as you might imagine. Um, but the sort of received version of it is this, that, you know, left-wing tendencies took over the IRA and ran it down until it was not a functional military organization. And as a result, right-wing tendencies split and formed what they envisioned would be a provisional military organization. And so this was the group that came to be known as the provisional IRA. Um, you know, I think like in reality, the actual political character of the provisionals at this time, and certainly later, was much more complicated than just saying they were right wing. Um, you know, socialism was like definitely an ideological current within the provisional movement. Um, but especially at the beginning, it sort of behooved them to paint the the rump, the official IRA, as out of touch, you know, Soviet-style communists, um, and that depiction has really like stuck in the popular imagination. And essentially, this is where our, our podcast begins with the birth of the Provisionals, you know, the group that everybody thinks of when you say the IRA. Um, and although they weren't, you know, the only armed group on the Republican side, the Provisionals really become almost hegemonic. And when Irish America wanted to support the struggle with guns and money, uh, it was the provisionals that they were looking to support. Right. And so this is the early 70s, basically, when this kind of shift to more guerrilla or, or terroristic armed struggle becomes somewhat popular in the, the Irish liberation politics. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, that, you know, in the late 60s, there had been this real shift to sort of like being involved in unions and fishing struggles and housing. Um, but when uh, street fighting sort of kicks off uh, because of, you know, this widespread discrimination, um, the IRA, you know, try to figure out how to relate to it. And there's some people in the IRA who are like, well, actually, we, we don't want to do the armed struggle anymore. Um, and then there's another group that are, are much more sort of um, geared up to do that. Uh, and those people sort of gravitate toward the provisionals. So what does the uh, the Irish identity or like the political extent of Irish identity in the United States look like in this moment? Obviously, this is already the 70s. Irish people are already uh, white, you know, for for several decades at this point. There's a lot of, you know, JFK was president. Right. You know, our podcast really focuses on this organization called Irish Northern Aid, or uh, which is usually called NORAID, um, which was founded right at around the same time as the Provisionals in the 1970. Um, but, you know, like Irish Republicans, like people who have struggled for to liberate Ireland from the British have always looked to the United States for support. And there's always been a huge amount of support in the United States within the Irish diaspora. Um, one of the things we, we cover in this, uh, in one of our bonus episodes is this kind of wild story in the, in the 19th century of a group of Irish Republicans who paid this guy in New Jersey to build like a submarine, this like prototype submarine, which was one of the first modern submarines uh so they could attack british naval targets with it which didn't pan out for them and you can listen to the the bonus episode to hear the rest but um it's kind of it shows like the the depth of support and like how long this um this tradition of supporting uh irish republican struggles in ireland is um i would say i mean nate you could speak a little bit more to the identities part of it, I think. Yeah, I mean, you know, maybe we'll come back to the uh, whiteness question in a second, but I think it's interesting, you know, this moment when Irish Northern Aid gets founded, um, I think there's a real shift going on in Irish American identity, right? Like, they have been, like, pretty much totally integrated into, uh, you know, not only, like, whiteness, but, like, middle-class American life. Um, but by the same token, uh, there's this sense uh, that maybe they're losing their connection to uh, a sense of Irishness. And, you know, the troubles kick off 
uh, and attract like a ton of attention to Ireland, to Northern Ireland. Um, the violence is, you know, spectacular violence that appears on television and on the radio and in newspapers. And Irish Northern Aid, you know, emerges out of these sort of like ethnic enclaves in New York, in Boston, Chicago, um, and are able to really shape how many Irish Americans sort of understand and relate to that political violence. Um, you know, there's an upsurge of support in the early 70s uh, for Irish Northern Aid, um, you know, people getting involved with the organization, wanting to uh, be supportive of the armed struggle. Um, and that sort of like ebbs and flows over the years. Um, but Norid in particular is extremely successful, I think, in our view of making America itself sort of a battleground that the British had to contend with. Um, and, you know, they're able to sort of hold together this, uh, you know, ideologically diverse coalition. You know, there were uh, very reactionary people who were involved in NORAID, and there were communists who were involved with NORAID and lots of people in between. Um, and I think one of the things that we found in our research is that one of the ways they were able to hold this coalition together was through a commitment to supporting armed struggle, which I think is maybe a surprise for, for lots of people that, you know, sort of extreme, uh, you know, tactics can sometimes bring a group together. Um, but in any case, you know, between 1972 and 1982, uh, the Provisionals and NORAID, who are, you know, the real support group, they like are the Republican movement in the United States and, and Ireland, you know, like they are what people think of when they think of armed struggle in Ireland. They like come to have this hegemonic, um, influence over the movement. Um, and so, you know, when it's like reflected back on I, on the United States, you know, they have a newspaper and they're making, you know, statements to the press. People come to them when the IRA, you know, blows something up or are engaged in like a firefight with the British Army for a quote. Um, and through their sort of engagement with the media, through creating their own media, making connections with politicians and their sort of like really vigorous street politics, um, you know, I think they end up like shaping how quite a few Irish Americans not only understand what's going on in Ireland, but help, you know, reshape how they think of themselves as Irish Americans, that, you know, it's not just some far off distant thing, maybe, you know, that you, you know, celebrate on St. Patrick's Day, but that there's a political element to uh, an Irish American identity that is not only in the past, but can be sort of like expressed in the present. Um, and that's sort of one of the, you know, I think important and often sort of like missed uh, elements around Irish Northern aid. And so uh, part of the uh, the uh, American support um, of the IRA during this, this time is, is you would like go to an Irish pub and there would be like maybe a flag on the wall or, you know, maybe people would sing some like patriotic songs. But there was some idea that some of the money you were spending or maybe you would just like be donating to NORAID and that money would go into the struggle somehow, right? Yeah, uh, they would, you know, there's sort of the, the most famous depiction of Norade is like these uh, dour old Republicans, like walking, you know, the Irish pubs in the Bronx and Queens with hands and collecting money. Um, but, you know, another thing that they did, they did, they held a lot of sort of social functions, sort of dances, dinners, concerts, talks, things like that. And so I think they were really able to fuse this sort of um, re-emergent Irish American identity with the politics in a way that created a real uh, social cohesion. Uh, at a time, you know, when a lot of people are sort of re-identifying with sort of their ethnicity, there's sort of the emergence of the white, the white ethnics. Um, and, you know, this, I think people are looking for kind of roots in this uncertain period sort of after the the height of the 1960s uprest and um sort of turn towards identity politics and there's a sense among irish people and you still hear it to some extent that like uh well like any um national liberation struggle there's always a bit of rhetoric that's like we are the most oppressed people in the world or like this is the central <laughs> struggle 
central struct. Well, there's the Pete Hamill, you know, that sort of Pete Hamill essay, right? Um, yeah, I, I wonder if it's actually the Bernadette Devlin McCallisky thing where it's like we want people to, to sort of like look at our struggle, join our struggle and realize that like the struggle that's going on in the United States around uh, the black freedom struggle is one that shares a lot of um, overlap with, uh, you know, questions in, in Belfast and Derry. Um, well, that, that's like the thing... that's like the more positive end of yeah, it. But yeah. then there's this other end and it's like I'm more familiar with it in like the Quebec separatism of mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. we are the blanks of Canada yeah. and yeah. like nobody in the world is treated as poorly as us. And maybe that sentiment wasn't like very common among uh, IRA supporters. But you do yeah. always get and you still get this rhetoric of like, well, you know, the first slaves were Irish and. Stuff like that. Mm-hmm. That's right. Maybe like going the other yeah. direction from like identifying with other struggles. Yeah, I was gonna say I think this is sort of a persistent myth in the Irish American um, community. The sort of the slate, this idea of Irish slavery. Um, obviously, it's not a myth that Irish people were discriminated against in this country. But um, you know what we found in in researching is that it could be mobilized in different directions, you know, on one hand, it could be mobilized as a reaction against, um, you know, appeals for black liberation and black equality. Um, the, the Pete Hamill essay I was thinking of, um, he talks about kind of going through the, these Irish American bars and, and one of the quotes from one of the guys is like, you know, basically the Irish Americans overcame all this, you know, oppression. So why can't black people? Um, but then on the, on the flip side, it can also be a, a point of solidarity where people see, you know, see their, see the struggle of Irish people in the United States and in Northern Ireland, and they're able to relate it to, um, you know, other, other groups struggles for freedom and equality. Um, I think that the, the former position is a little bit more prevalent in the wider community and maybe the more nuanced sort of solidarity prone, uh, solidarity, um, you know, favorable position is more, is more common, like closer in the more activists in the, in the American Republican movement. Sorry. One of the central questions that like, I think our podcast is trying to understand is about these like competing political tendencies, right? Like in Ireland, this idea that, uh, of like looking to make connections with struggles, you know, across the world in South Africa with the Black Freedom Movement, uh, with the Palestinians, you know, that is like deeply held, you know, mm-hmm. um, and the sense of uh, Irish Republicanism sort of like being about equality, uh, often being wrapped up in questions around socialism, um, is very like firmly held in Ireland, and you know, one of the things we wanted to get into was why the inverse is often the case in the United States. Why is it that, um, you know, uh, this white Irish identity um, is actually, or sorry, this uh, Irish Republican identity can so often be mobilized uh, in support of white supremacy. Um, And, you know, tracing that requires going back, you know, um, over 100 years, but, it remains a pretty like live wire uh, in you know Irish communities today. You know one of the things that we talk about is um, just last year at the St. Patrick's Day Parade uh, in South Boston, there was a like so-called nationalist social club, neo-Nazi group, um, that hung a banner um, along the sidelines of the parade that said uh, "Keep Boston Irish." You know, um, so there is this really like, diverging. Um, path of understanding um, and relating to uh, the struggle in Ireland through this like vector of race. Um, and I know you guys have sort of talked about Nolik Natyev uh, on the show before, um, but I think for us, you know, his book, How the Irish Became White, uh, really explains how that like diversion or how that, um, yeah, that diversion like takes place, how people who remain in Ireland and people who end up in the United States uh, end up having these totally different roots, um, roots, you know, R-O-U-T-E-S, um, uh, when it ter- when it comes to, you know, approaching Irish nationalism. Um, 
you know, folks like end up in the United States uh, fleeing mass starvation uh, in the 1850s. Um, and when they arrive, it's this it's to this wholly different set of oppressive dynamics, you know, than the United States. Um, I think Ignatieff says blackness was the badge of the slave. And so these white skinned Irish people enter a system that, you know, grants them uh, free, allows them to be sort of free labor. Um, but that while they had that, um, you know, eligibility for membership in the white race, it didn't guarantee that they were going to be admitted and they had to earn it. Um, and they sort of do so, I don't know, with the help of the democratic sort of party machine in um, East Coast cities. Uh, you know, there's a sort of like deal that happens um, where uh, in exchange for voting for pro-slavery candidates, the, the democratic party distribute jobs to the Irish as dock workers and firefighters, policemen. Um, and, you know, during this period, you know, Irish people are like living alongside African-Americans and are um, attacked by nativist mobs. Both, both groups are attacked by nativist mobs. Um, but some Irish-Americans sort of realize that one way they can earn the privileges of whiteness uh, is to differentiate themselves from black people and to attack black people and terrorize them through riots. Uh, and they end up building this place for themselves within whiteness um, that end up shaping how Irish nationalism is thought through in the United States. And I think those ideas um, are really uh, important for some of the founders of, of Irish Northern Aid. You know, the people who uh, start the group, you know, arrived in the United States at a time when the, you know, New York draft riots were like within living memory. Um, and so you see them trying to distinguish themselves and their struggle from black civil rights, um, even while at the same time, people in Ireland are being inspired by the black civil rights movement. Um, so yeah, this like diverging uh, understanding of their like relation to civil rights is, uh, is something we were you know, interested in tracking. So what would you, how would you characterize like the general political um, trajectory of Irish people between this period of Irish people becoming white in the late 19th century until the the 60s and 70s? Was there always this kind of, you know, anti-British nationalist sentiment, but it wasn't particularly left-wing? And does it go through a particularly, like, left, um, you know, uh, reformation in the 60s and 70s? Uh, because I'm, I'm particularly interested in, in some of the imagery uh, that you describe of like po NYPD police officers saluting at a, a memorial for a, a, you know, a fallen IRA prisoner. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, obviously these things are not like monolithic, right? There's always Irish Americans who are active on the left and on the right. Um, but I think we often see that the, uh, sort of like standard bearers of Irish American identity um, tend to fall more on the reactionary side. Um, and if you look back to the 50s, you know, um, if you think about Father Coughlin, who was this, um, you know, right wing Catholic priest um, who had a radio show um, that, you know, was essentially like uh, anti-Semitic and uh, proto-fascist um, platform, you know, he sort of gets his start in talking in and meeting in uh, clubs that are dedicated to Irish nationalism and Irish republicanism. Um, at the same time, there are people who are inspired by the left wing of the tradition, uh, especially here in New York, uh, who are involved in uh, union struggles, um, you know, dock workers. Uh, the uh, TWU here in New York sort of has famously um, left wing Irish connections. Um, but uh, by the time the troubles sort of come around, uh, the people who are engaged in like really what's going on in Ireland are people who come from the, the right wing of that tradition. Um, and it, it takes a while for uh, left wing people to sort of get involved uh, with these groups. Um, you know, before the troubles really break out in 1969, 1970, the only groups that are active uh, in the United States in support of uh, what's going on in Northern Ireland are not concerned about civil rights in Northern Ireland at all. Like their concern is about the border, 
right? They want to destroy the border, destroy the, the state of Northern Ireland, but uh, they're not really, you know, uh, responding to these concerns around civil rights, around like voting discrimination and housing, um, unemployment stuff, right? That, it was, that was like a bridge too far for them. They couldn't understand the struggle in those terms. They could only respond to it on the basis of uh, a national question. Um, and so it takes a little while for them to orient themselves to what's happening uh, in the North um, and really only can like get on board when it takes on this sort of like nationalist character, when the IRA becomes sort of like re-engaged in an armed campaign um, and it can be sort of like presented as a, as a national question as opposed to a civil rights one. Um, so I don't know if that quite answers your question, but um, you know, there is this uh, tradition, at least in the United States, of Irish Americans, you know, on the right being interested in questions uh, around Irish nationalism, but to the exclusion often of civil rights, even in Northern Ireland. Mm. Uh, and then, so this moves into a, a more explicit kind of resolution in the 80s and 90s when NORAID, uh, you know, although it's still labeled as like the the foreign agent of the IRA or, or Sinn Fein, like a, a, essentially a a terrorist group, um, was you know making connections in the halls of power. Uh, I think at some point they had a, a meeting scheduled with uh, uh, George H W Bush that uh, was canceled by the Secret Service, and then Clinton, when he's running for president, is more or less saying like, yeah, they should be part of the conversation to to resolve this once and for all, right? So how, how did they? How did we? Uh, how did they get to that point? From the point where it was like you know recognized as a, a terrorist group, essentially, to the point where it was more or less an accepted part of U.S. politics. To the point where you even have like Peter King and Rudy Giuliani uh, attending events with with Norad. I mean, throughout the the troubles, the sort of Norad and the IRA have these sort of uh, parallel parallel experiences and these, you know, things that happen in Northern Ireland affect what happened in the United States and vice versa. And so Norway, so in the eighties, you know, um, a faction and the leadership and the provisionals start to sort of turn, you know, we go into it in the podcast in more detail, but they, they see that electoral politics might be an avenue towards power. You know, they advance this idea of, the Armalite in the ballot box, um, the idea that they can both continue the armed struggle and also challenge elections in Northern Ireland and then eventually also in the Republic of Ireland. Um, and, you know, as that, as that process develops and they see more and more potential for a political solution to the, to the conflict, they also start to put pressure on Norad to gain more political power within the United States, within sort of, you know, traditional halls of power to sort of move their politics off the streets and sort of into, you know, the the offices of, of legislators and, you know, they try for presidents, although they never really get there. Um, and, and this is, you know, and this is, of course, extremely controversial on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, uh, there's you know, people, there's just dissidents in the provost against this move and in Norad as well. Some people feel that this is a, an abandonment of the, the core aspect of their struggle, which is that um, only through violence will the British be pushed out. But they do succeed in the, the people who agree to this sort of change succeed in, to some extent, continuing to shape the, the discussion about um, what's going on in Northern Ireland at that time? I don't know, Nate. If you want to jump in on that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, one thing to say about just about Peter King specifically, since you brought him up. You know, he's obviously one of these people who's on the far right of the tradition, um, and he was, you know, supportive of the IRA like long before there's any talk about them giving up the armed struggle. You know, there's some like kind of like shocking quote that King gives where he describes the IRA as like the you know, uh, the true government of the people of the island of Ireland, um, which is like pretty wild for a sitting congressman to say. Um, and um, 
you know, NORAID has sort of and seeks out uh, supporters in uh, Congress from it from its very beginning. You know, they have uh, somebody like Mario Biaggi, who was a, a congressman from the Bronx, um, who also was extremely supportive of the um, Irish nationalism, Irish republicanism, and was able to, um, you know, use his limited power in Congress to try to uh, prevent arms shipments, essentially, to um, the police force in Northern Ireland from the United States. You know, they're able to wield some power on this federal level. Um, but as Michael said, this, you know, this shift that starts happening in the 80s towards electoralism, towards parliamentary politics um, is extremely divisive. Uh, and the sort of like older members of NORAID um, are shunted to the side. Uh, and there's, you know, either consciously or unconsciously, a uh, a shift that happens among the people who are, are interested in, in parliamentary politics, where they sort of know that if they want real support from the United States, if they want to wield American power uh, on behalf of their cause, they're going to have to change um, and sort of accommodate American power uh, at the same time, that they're not going to be able to maintain, you know, socialist policies uh, and armed struggle and get the support of sitting senators uh, or the president of the United States. Um, but, you know, with, uh, you know, the election of Bill Clinton, um, there's this sense that if they can moderate and modulate themselves uh, to fit uh, into some sort of, you know, uh, political and like, you know, nonprofit sort of NGO uh, framework uh, that maybe there's going to be um, some way in which they can wield American power. Um, and so they transition into, you know, away from the street politics of NORAID with like demonstrating in front of the British embassy, burning uh, effigies of Margaret Thatcher and start, you know, pouring their money into lobbying. Um, and uh, political campaigns uh, on the island of Ireland. So this shift happens, uh, and while it like unlocks some power that they're able to wield, it also means that they have to give up considerable, um, you know, elements of their own identity that had been so important to them since the the beginning of the troubles. And and in the '90s, we see this ceasefire and this agreement. Um, um, uh, you know, negotiated by Sinn Féin, right, to basically bury or destroy all of the IRA's arms and just transition to a purely political parliamentary struggle, essentially. And that's more or less where we are now, except that we now have a secretly IRA president, right? <laughs> know if you know this but there's a, a little theory in our circles that biden or brandon as we call him uh secretly has a very radical agenda let's just say you know i've been reading some stuff some like anonymous posts on uh, some image boards that uh dark brandon might be uniting ireland pretty soon <laughs> uh well, you know he had this like sort of gaffe in jerusalem where he he managed to offend you know a whole host of of our of our national allies, but he says, my background, the background of my family is Irish American. And we have a long history, not fundamentally unlike the Palestinian people with great Britain and their attitude towards Irish Catholics over the last 400 years. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this shows uh, like, again, the sort of the, how deep uh, rooted this sort of myth is in like uh, the Irish American identity that, you know, in, in his like addled brain where he's like looking for a point of connection in, you know, with Palestinian people for, for reasons that's, you know, don't make a lot of sense, but he reaches for this sort of, um, this myth of, of Irish oppression and, and the struggle against, you know, Great Britain. It's, I mean, I, the funny thing is, you know, we, of course, are like looking on Twitter to see if people are talking about Norade and, and all that. And that you consistently see posts like accusing Joe Biden of being secretly part of Norade or Nancy Pelosi, like anytime they make any sort of 
criticism of British policy in Northern Ireland or suggest that, um, you know, because the UK is talking about changing the border protocol between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland and, you know, the United States, like the Biden administration has pushed back on this a little bit. And it's just met with like these crazy, crazy uh, rants about his, yeah, his secret IRA um, agenda. Yeah. yeah, Irish Northern Aid is really like in a certain segment of the British public's mind, like the ultimate boogeyman coming from the United States. Um, and it's interesting, you know, Joe Biden, like, obviously has been uh, in federal office for a long time. And so Irish Northern Aid, you know, was some, sometimes saw him as an ally um, and sometimes as an enemy. You know, he was sort of on both sides. Um, you know, he was most notably sort of like involved in opposing the Reagan administration's attempt to change the like U.S.-U.K. extradition treaty, um, which would have made it a lot easier for the United States to extradite IRA volunteers who are like living and hiding in the United States. So he opposed that. Um, but by the same token, in the 1990s, you know, when he's pushing crime legislation, you know, like the famous like Biden crime bill, uh, that included a statute that was specifically about material support for terrorism, um, which Norad believed could and would be used against them in their fundraising and advocacy for the IRA. Um, so, you know, he sort of like falls on, on both sides of these things. Um, and so what's going on with Sinn Féin today in, uh, in Ireland? There's a, uh, I think you had something in the, your last episode about how they're for the first time uh, polling uh, well in, or taking the lead in, in North Ireland. Is that right? Like even though it, it, everything was so gerrymandered against them, they're now gaining some popularity. Uh, but then in the last episode, you also have this uh, critique of their politics as becoming purely opportunistic at this point. So how, how, how do you see uh, 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 Sinn Féin today? Well, yeah, so Sinn Féin recently won or won the most seats in the election in Northern Ireland, um, which means that they it's it's sort of a complicated situation because of the Good Friday Agreement. So it's a power sharing agreement, but it would mean that they would be the the leading coalition. They would lead the coalition of a government with um, uh, another sort of unionist party. Um, the polling they're actually polling really well in the Republic of Ireland, which will have a general election in 2025, I think. Um, and so there is this sort of possibility, you know, if they don't, it, first of all, if they're able to form a government in Northern Ireland, which is unclear because the the unionist parties are sort of resisting uh, forming a government, but if they are able to form a government and they don't do a terrible job, um, you know, they could possibly also win the, win the, you know, uh, a majority of the seats in, or a significant majority of the seats in the, in the Republic of Ireland. And then you would have, you know, Sinn Féin basically in both governments ruling the entirety of the island of Ireland, um, which would be sort of unprecedented. Um, I mean, I think the, yeah, what we talked about in the podcast is there's this, you know, for people who don't know, there's a tendency to think of Sinn Féin as a left-wing party um, because they come out of the sort of socialist tradition of that the IRA adopted sort of in the, especially in the 80s. Um, but that they've also been really pragmatic, um, you know, in their attempts to, enlarge their base and gain more power and they've taken positions on crime and abortion um in northern ireland for for instance that are you know in no mean like by no means left-wing um and so they've really become you know um like a neoliberal social democratic party in europe um and that's sort of they're not they're sort of like any other of these centrist social democracies in, in Western Europe at this point. Well, that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> so like this, you know, uh, unprecedented thing that everyone always, you know, dreamed of for decades is happening and it's just not going to really change anything. Well, it might, you know, it might change. They still may 
preside over the reunification of the island. It's it's a complicated process. You know, it involves you know this sort of official in the UK has to call a referendum. Once the polling suggests that there's enough support for it, he has to call a referendum in Northern Ireland and in the Republic of Ireland. Um, you know, I went to see Mary Lou McDonald talk who in New York, and she's the the head of Sinn Féin now, um, and in the parliament in the in the Republic of Ireland. And you know, I was really struck by she's she was talking as if it if it's a foregone conclusion, not only that they're going to be in power, but also that uh, reunification is in the immediate future. You know, she was talking like someone who's already won. Um, and kind of thinking about ways to bring the unionist community, you know, the the Protestant population in Northern Ireland that doesn't want, that wants to remain in the UK, like bring them along in reunification. I mean, I think, you know, they may achieve their long-held goal of reunification, but it just might mean that a reunited Ireland is just uh, the sort of same kind of social democracy like I don't know, Denmark or France, you know, not a socialist workers' republic that was promised, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think the shorthand for this is like, it's probable that there will be a united Ireland, but it's not clear if there will be like a new Ireland, if it will just be the sort of six counties absorbed into the rest of the island with this, you know, similar. Uh, you know, dynamics that the Republic of Ireland is already dealing with. It's certainly no socialist paradise. Cool. So I think we're going to move to a bonus. I want to read you something that Engels wrote about uh, the Irish uh, working class and get your take on it. And then maybe we'll talk about some other interesting stories that you uncovered in uh, in your research from the podcast. But uh, before we do that, just let everyone know where to listen to it. Uh, you can find Foreign Agent uh, pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts, um, but you can find it on Spotify and iTunes, SoundCloud, um, and on the website of Navarro Media, which uh, helped us produce the series. Oh, okay. I thought you had to like go to a, a bar called the Starry Plow and like knock on a door <laughs> and get a, like a flash drive. I, I didn't realize you just download it. You have to do that for the bonus episodes. Oh, okay. okay. Right, cool. right. Cool. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Andy. Aaron Gobra. Thanks. What is, is that right? What does that mean? Ireland forever. Okay. Yeah. Aaron Gobra. I, I thought this was like Aloha or something. He was hello and goodbye. <laughs>